For Jacob, it had been 22 years since he'd seen Joseph. 22 years. I have children who live in different states, or maybe I see them two or three times a year. That seems like a long time to me. I can't imagine 22 years. But now Jacob was ready for this reunion with his son. And he must have been thinking, what is this going to be like? It's been so long. And there had to be a sense of anxiety. There had to be a a sense of trepidation going into Egypt. He knew how powerful his son had become. And I think he probably considered the fact he might be walking into a trap. But none of that mattered anymore. He wanted to see his son. That's Jacob. And then there's Joseph. He's in Egypt and he's getting ready to see his father. It had been so long. And here he was now, this Egyptian ruler. And he'd already been rejected by his father What would it be like for his father to see him like this? Would he be rejected again? What would his father look like? Would he be feeble? Would he even be able to make it to the journey? Would he be able to make it to Egypt? That's what the two men had to be grappling with as they began this trek toward a reunion. And they readied And they waited. You know, when we come together in relationships, it can be risky business. There's a lot at stake. But these two men were willing to shove all of that risk aside and enjoy this sweet time together that enabled God to continue the covenant promise. Israel to Egypt, become a great nation, birth Messiah. And so for you and me, as we look at our own lives and as we look at our mission, both personally and as a church, we have to understand that relationships are a huge part of that mission. And if our relationships are not right, then we cannot fully step out into and lean into God's plan for us. So this morning, I want us to to step into the power of God, to take a risk, to learn how to obey and humble ourselves. Because it's vital that we make things right with each other in order to be right with God. If we don't, all of the fancy things we do, all of the strategies that we have, all of the cool things we want to embark on are not going to work because we need to be right with each other first. And so take your Bibles, if you would. I'd like you to turn to the book of Genesis, and today we're going to land in chapter 48. Genesis 48, or 46 rather, beginning in verse 8. Genesis 46, beginning in verse 8. You can grab that Bible in the seat back in front of you, or you can go on the Ridgewood app, And you can just download the study notes right into your device 
and follow me along. There's notes there, there's the text there, and so forth. So 46, beginning in verse 8. Now, if you open to this text, you see, beginning in verse 8, this long list of names and families. And we're not going to delve into that this morning, except to say that the reason the narrator, Moses, put that there is because he's chronicling the migration of the clan, of Joseph's clan, Israel, to Egypt. And what he's saying to Israel is, God is faithful to His covenant promises. God gave a covenant to Abraham. You will have your land. You will be a blessing to the nations through Messiah. You will grow into a great nation. And so it's here because God is saying to them, Do you see? It's happening. So 70 people in all are on their way to Egypt. But now... The attention focuses on Jacob and this reunion that he's about to have with his son. And so we pick up the narrative in verse 28, 46, 28, and we see reconciliation begin. But we see it's not an easy road, but the results are sweet. So the text says that he, meaning Jacob, has sent Judah ahead of him to show Joseph, or to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. So Judah, of course, is Jacob's son, Joseph's half-brother, Goshen is in Egypt. Goshen is this lush portion of Egypt back then. Now it's desert. But it's being prepared. Judah's going ahead and things are beginning to take shape. And what's obvious here is that Moses is painting a picture for us of a reconciled relationship that paves the way for Israel to become a great nation in Egypt. And we see that right here. And what really strikes me about this is how much the men had to overcome even to get to this point. Joseph had all of these years where the family had abandoned him. He had been from slave traders to Potiphar's house to prison. And he all this time had to be thinking about betrayal. And loneliness. And then Jacob, all of this time, was grieving. He thought he had lost his son. The brothers had told him that Joseph was dead. But here they are. They're now coming together. They've overcome all of this. And they're going to obey what God calls them to do. And so the first point, I think, that just jumps off the text here is that obedience leads to reconciliation. Obedience leads to reconciliation. There is just downright, straight out obedience going on here. And I know how hard it can be between parent and child. Some of you are experiencing that right now. Some of you have given up. Some of you have estranged children or you're living with a teenager, 
but you're having a hard time relating to. Well, you're not the first. We love teenagers. They're a lot of fun. Don't understand them, but they're a lot of fun. It's hard. But Jacob was willing to take this step. Joseph was willing to entertain the idea, and they're simply obeying. Now, remember, Jacob obeyed as he heard the call of God, and we talked about this last week. He, he wanted to stop, and he grappled with God, and he listened to God. What, what are you telling me to do? What do you want me to do? He, he wanted to go there and see Joseph for sure, but he was afraid. This was foreign land. And God said, go. And so Jacob got up, and he went. And then there's Joseph obeying because he knew that he was the carrier of the family of promise. And he was walking this fine line between being an Egyptian ruler of a pagan nation, being almost fully Egyptian now, still being the son of Israel, and still carrying the promise of the nation. And he had told his brothers in 45.7 that I have been sent before you to preserve the remnant. And so he knew exactly what his role in this drama is and was, and he knew that God was driving the entire drama. And that's why these words are on the platform, because as you look at this narrative, what we think is going on isn't already always going on. But God is always working implicitly in the background. And so the two men set out in obedience. You know, there's always a reason not to obey. We can always find a reason. Jacob could have said, listen, I don't think this is going to work. I don't like the parameters. I don't like what God's asking me to do. His fears were probably such that he knew exactly that Joseph knew exactly what the family had done to him. Jacob knew his own sons well. They were murderous, liars, and deceivers. And he probably thought to himself, all this time Joseph has been just waiting for this opportunity to pounce. This may not go well. And then for him there was also this, he could have said, listen, I don't want to leave my homeland. Now, thankfully, God had introduced this famine, so it pushed them toward Egypt. But there's always a reason not to obey. And then there's Joseph over here saying, well, why, why should I? I mean, look what my family did to me. They left me for dead. They abandoned me. I'm, I'm the, the second most powerful man in the world. I have the food. I have the power. Why would I want to reconcile? Thankfully, Joseph never forgot the dream. The dream was that he would rule over his family, but he also understood the covenant promise that he had to fulfill this. And so there was a tremendous relational risk for both men. Yet they obeyed when God called them to obey. They didn't make up excuses. They didn't tell God why they can't do this. They just did it. And the consequences are remarkable and amazing. 
I think so many times we don't, we don't heal relationships because we're afraid of that risk. We don't enter into relationships. We don't want to fix relationships because it's risky and we may get hurt more. We may be embarrassed. Or worse yet, we may actually have to admit that we are wrong. But if you think for a minute that reconciling relationships or being right with other believers is optional, then think again. Because the Bible is very clear that it is not optional to live with believers in unity. God is love. We love God by loving His children. Here is just a sampling of texts that will help you understand this. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. There's a couple things I want you to notice here. First, let's go back to that last one. There we are. All right. A couple things I want you to notice. First, if you remember that your brother has something against you. This isn't just if you've hurt somebody. If you know there's somebody out there and they're angry with you, or they're being standoffish, God is saying... I don't want your religion. I don't want your, your, your fake Christianity. Go make it right and then come back to me. Because, frankly, I value that relationship more than I value all of this stuff we're doing here. Not optional. And then you take a look at other texts that are so powerful. Matthew 18, which is the template for how to make relationships right. Here's a sample from 15. Moreover, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Notice. Go and tell him his fault between you and him. Between you and her. Between you and whatever person. Not to your prayer group. Not to the gossip chain. This is how you reconcile relationships. It's not optional. And then the gift of this is that when you finally reconcile, then you have a new friend and a new brother. And then in Romans 14, 19, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. This is what we are to be pursuing as believers. Edifying one another, living together in harmony and unity. And I could throw dozens of scriptures at you, but listen. The point is, you can't decide. If you want to be an obedient believer, and I know what happens in evangelical churches, we pride ourselves on being really obedient, really Bible-knowledged, you know. But if you're not loving people, then God doesn't care about the rest. Sorry. That's what, that's what he's saying here. And I know that's kind of countercultural in, in the evangelical church. One important caveat that I have to throw out here before we continue. There are situations where you can't reconcile. Or you shouldn't. In cases of abuse. 
in cases where reconciliation would be an inappropriate boundary that you cross over when someone has died. I get that. What I'm talking about this morning is I'm talking about normal, everyday church relationships, family relationships. You know what's sad is when is when people run into each other at Target and Cub and they can't make eye contact. Or, or they turn the other way. I, I've been in stores like that where people are angry with me or something and maybe they left the church. Maybe I fired them. I don't know. But anyway, so... And they see me coming and they go, whoosh, Gone. supposed to live like that. Have you had that experience? I bet you have. Have you ever lived in a small town? We lived in the suburb of Vancouver. It was so small that everyone knew everyone, yet we were only 20 minutes from downtown. But I'll tell you what, man, you better get your relationships right because you're going to meet them every single day on the street. God wants relationships to be right. And that's what was happening here. And it's so sad when we can't forgive each other. And here's the problem. We need to obey, but secondly, we need to humble ourselves. And we need to submit to Jesus. Because the reconciliation requires humility. 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 Look at the attitude of these men in the second half of 29. So he, Joseph presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. The Hebrew here for wept is bewail, to cry. It emphasizes the noise of the wailing. You would have heard it all through Pharaoh's court. It wasn't a fist bump. It broke. It's weeping. Incredible humility. Reconciliation is sweet. But we have to humble ourselves before Jesus in order to do it because Jesus is our example of what humility is. Jesus came as the reconciler. This is His mission to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to each other. And so... If we want to walk as disciples of Jesus Christ, then reconciliation has to be on the front page of what we're trying to do. And when we say making Jesus known by community impact, what we're saying is we want to make Jesus known to the point where we can move from hostility and God's wrath to this sweet relationship that is eternal with the Father through Jesus Christ. We do that by exactly what we did last night. We, we, we host people that aren't valued in society and we love them and we lift them up and we tell them, not only are we putting up with you, we're celebrating the fact that you are exactly like you are. That makes a huge impact. That's how we make people known. Or make Jesus known. And, and, and then, when we're talking about missions, we want to send missionaries into the field. And 
We want our church to play a vital role in people getting saved across the ocean. We're talking about community groups. Everybody's always asking me, like, what's this missional community group thing? All it means is that we're forming small groups that have an open chair, that you go, you go get your neighbor and you say, I, I don't know if you're interested in this or not, but would you please come be with us? And I'm so excited because you're doing this. We have people coming to the staff and they're saying, I'm forming a group. I'm doing this. I've got these people here. And I trust that those five people that have come to know Christ so far this year, that more houses will be lit with the fire of Christ in our community. And I just long for the day when this platform isn't big enough to hold those. And I'm praying for 52 people this year to come and know Christ through a direct ministry of Ridgewood Church. I'm praying for 52 baptisms. I'm praying that people can come to know Jesus, reconcile with Jesus, because we have been reconciled to each other and we take our mission seriously. But I will say this again, that if we aren't reconciled with each other, then Satan will attack and he'll find every loose piece of wood and he'll crack it open and he seeks to destroy. But Jesus reconciles. I mean, there's no hope for reconciliation except through Christ. Look at Colossians 1.20. In this incredible... By the way, we're going to go into Colossians when we're finished with Joseph at Easter. And we're going to begin the week after Easter. But, you know, this is about reconciliation. Reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I don't think we have time to mess around. I think, I think we have to focus on Jesus. And I, I, I tell you this knowing that, that as America continues to divide and split down ethnic lines, down political lines, the only hope for reconciliation is Jesus. The only hope is the gospel. If you're putting your hope in a, in a political leader to put this all back together, good luck. Jesus has always been the hope. The gospel has always been the only hope. Because the gospel is about reconciliation. And here you have, again, this beautiful parallel between Jesus and Joseph. You have Joseph over here who has been left for dead by the very people that were his kinsmen, the very people he trusted, the very people that were to protect him. But yet he was willing to humble himself and reconcile with them and forgive them. And then you have Jesus over here who is the anti-type or the fulfillment of the type that Joseph is. Jesus has been rejected by his kinsmen. Jesus offered himself as king of Israel. And instead of accepting their king, they killed him. But yet he has reconciled us to himself through the cross. Giving of his life. And so... That's what we need to be all about. And I, I, know, I know what it's like. I, I have this issue too. Like I, I get into a wrong relationship and things kind of go sour. And I have this like, um, I'm right. You're wrong. I'm usually right, but not always. But sometimes I think I'm always right. 
I'm always right about sports. If you want to talk sports with me, come and just sit at the feet and listen to everything. And I think I'm right. I'm not giving up my position. I deserve A, B, and C. And so I'm going to wait for that person to come to me. If they don't, that's their problem. That's sin when I do that. That is not the way of a Jesus follower. The way of a Jesus follower is to get small, to sacrifice ourselves, to die to ourselves, to be crucified with Christ. So we have a father and son here in this text who are willing to forgive each other. The son willing to give the, forgive the father for years of neglect, for abandoning him, for laughing at his dream, and the father willing to give, forgive the son for this long game he had been playing with his family. And they came together and they humbled themselves and they were made right with each other. So listen. Our role model is Jesus Christ. And if you doubt that, look at this. You know this passage, but it's always, I don't know what better passage to use. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through, who, who, through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So I ask you, you Jesus follower? Oh, yeah, yeah. Then that is your model. You know, I was thinking today as we were praying in the prayer room, and thank you to all of you who pray on Sunday mornings. I'm not there very long usually, but it just helps me to get centered and focused, and I listen to you pray. And I was thinking about the snowflake ball, and I was thinking about how I want to, I want our church to die to ourselves for our community. I want us to die to what we once thought church should be in order to reach our community. I don't want to fight with our community. I don't want to take a self-righteous stand and fight our community leaders. I want to invite our community leaders in to meet Jesus. I want to invite our community in to meet Jesus. And I don't know what happened in evangelical America where we went from being inviters to being fighters. I don't want to fight. I want to stand for what's right. And I'll never back off on that. I I, I want to love our community to Christ. That's what Jesus did. This is the gospel. We've had, in the last... Three or four weeks, we've had horrific crimes that we've all been grappling with. We, we watched the, the Dr. Nasser thing with the Olympic team and all of the abuse. We watched the court proceedings, and we see this guy sitting there in this orange jumpsuit, and we're going, you, I can't believe you did this. Heinous crimes. And then last week, we 
watched in horror as 17 people in a high school were killed, and we watched this kid, and he's standing with his lawyer, and he's got this orange jumpsuit on, and we're going, wow, like, how, could, how could anyone ever even stand next to the guy, let alone, let alone defend him? And then I, you realize that, you know, we're heinous defendants. And if we think for our moment that our sin is somehow less repugnant or that our sin will somehow feed us into eternity because we aren't as bad as others, then we don't know the gospel. The gospel is, is that Jesus steps in that place, he puts on the orange jumpsuit and he says, I'm going to take whatever comes, I'm going to the electric chair, I'm going to prison for you because you're the one who deserves to go there because you have rebelled against me. And so, through belief in me, I'm putting that jumpsuit on. That's the gospel. That's what we want people to know. Is it not? Because what else is going to bring them hope? And so, these men are, these men are coming together and they're reconciling through obedience and humility. But now let's look at the results for a moment. Look at verse 30. So Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Reconciliation brings peace. It's like a load is taken off. Now Joseph could look at his son. He could close his eyes in death. And know that he had spent his last hours with this boy that he loved so desperately. And there was peace in the family. Because God had led the family to Egypt, the the brothers had reconciled. Jacob and Joseph have reconciled and there's peace. And from a from a, a 5,000 foot view, these are two men reconciling with each other to save a family. But from the 30,000 foot view, this is God saving Israel. Which is really what the Joseph narrative is all about. It's about God saving Israel and he used reconciliation to save a nation that would birth Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because they had to get to Egypt. They had to explode into a mighty nation, though under slavery. But then as God planned it, another deliverer would come named Moses who would give us another type of Christ. It's all had to happen this way, and reconciliation was God's key. But there was also action that came with it. I want you to look at verse 31 with me. Because Joseph now, once this reconciliation had happened, now he's going to go do something about it. And you almost almost feel the pace pick up now. The excitement begins... Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. I find this interesting. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that we may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. 
And so now Joseph jumps into action. He's going to create a place for his family to live. He's instructing them regarding how to live in Egypt, how to contextualize into the culture, because reconciliation brings hope for the best. Because once you reconcile with someone, you can begin to hope for their best. And then God does amazing things. We're not sure why Egyptians hated shepherds. It might just be because of the sacrificial system in Israel. And I love it. You know, these guys are really bright guys because in 47, Pharaoh asked them, what's your occupation? And they say, shepherds. So I'm not sure that it all got through. Joseph probably went like, oh, whoa, boy. But you see here that true reconciliation brings a change of attitude. It's not enough just to say, yeah, okay, you know, Joe and I, we're, on, we're, we're, we're okay now. No. It brings a change of heart. It brings a change of attitude. It takes action. And now, all of a sudden, here's Joseph making it right. And, and again, Joseph could have held this over his family. He was reigning in Egypt. But he obeyed God and he humbled himself. I wonder how much blessing that we miss out on because we are unwilling or unable to pursue reconciliation. I wonder how much blessing we miss out on because we aren't willing to invite God into our deepest recesses of our soul and to say, will you please dredge out the sin, the deception, the wickedness, and what I am holding against my brothers and sisters? Because so many of us are just plain stuck. Somebody's hurt us, and we can't get past it. And we might go along for a while and go like, yeah, I've kind of forgotten that. But then all of a sudden something happens and it's right there. We're not dealing with it. How much blessing do we miss out on? And so I ask you this morning, are your relationships right? Are your relationships clear? Is there someone that you know is angry with you? There was a guy in Vancouver that was really angry with me. And the last thing I wanted to do was to pursue this guy. But these texts that I read for you convicted me so much that I called another pastor and said, I said, Jeff, you need to help me with this guy because I, I don't know what to do, so I need you to be a mediator. Don't walk away from what God is teaching you through this text. Maybe it's someone who used to go to church here. Maybe it's someone sitting in this room. Maybe it's an action that somebody took. Maybe it's a former pastor. Whatever it is, or whoever that person is, picture in your mind Joseph and Jacob weeping. Joseph wailing in the house of Pharaoh, a leader submitting himself humbly to the process of reconciliation. And I emphasize the word humble. Humble obedience 
making things right with each other so we can be right with God. And before we sing a couple of songs to celebrate and to meditate on this truth, that there is joy in this, and that, remember, I don't want you to forget that the result of this reconciliation was the Messiah came into the world to save the world. Let's pray. God, this is hard stuff, man. I don't like it. I'm guilty. I don't, I don't like to pursue people and confront them. I don't like people to tell me I'm wrong. But yet you called us to live in unity together. Nothing sweeter than brothers who live in unity. So God, give us a sense of obedience, submission, and a willingness to do whatever you call us to do, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's countercultural, even if it's costly. Because I believe, and I think this story shows so clearly, that you will bring incredible glory out of that reconciliation. And we pray this in your name.